Welcome to the Road Sermon Podcast, where today we begin our new series entitled Powerful Women. And we're talking today about Esther. Esther's life was marked by twists and turns, by moments beyond her control, and by times where she just wished to be left alone. Her experiences parallel the intricate tapestry of our own lives, where God's providence is consistently at work, even when we may not see it. Join us as we delve into the unexpected, the providential, and the transformative. Good morning. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you. Everybody grab a Bible, something you can read God's Word from. We're going to be in the book of Esther, the book of Esther, chapter 4. You say, where in the world is the book of Esther? Well, in my Bible, it's page 713. If that will help you today, I'd start there. If you don't know where you're going, otherwise use your table of contents, book of Esther chapter 4. We spent the last 11 weeks in what I would call masculine themes. Uh, We spent a number of weeks on spiritual warfare, talking about warfare, and then we looked at parenting from the perspective of a warrior and his bow. For the next three weeks, we're going to look at the lives of three women in Scripture in a series I call Powerful Women. Now, it's crazy in church, the word powerful and women is not often used together. Uh, And while the church seems to be uncomfortable with powerful women, the Bible doesn't. And we're going to look at the lives of some women who were leaders, who were military leaders, some women who were prophets. And we're going to glean lessons for all of our lives from what God's word says about them. We're going to start today by looking at the life of Esther in a message uh, called Powerful in Position. If you will take your Bible and look in chapter 4, and if you will read with me verses 13 and 14, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. I want you to look at me before we get going. I don't know where you are today. But is there a chance that you are where you are for such a time as this? Would you pray with me? Father, I ask you that you teach us, open our eyes, Father, let us see what we've never seen, Father, and apply it in ways that we never have to our lives. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. She was a young girl when tragedy struck her life. Both of her parents uh, died. We don't know why or how. All we know is that she was alone. Life is hard. It's a hard world to grow up in. It's even harder when you're an orphan. The one thing that her parents left her was a name. They left her the Hebrew name Hadassah, which means myrtle. Hadassah was an extraordinarily beautiful young child, a truth that would ultimately change her life forever. When you're an orphan, you're dependent upon the kindness of others. And Hadassah had a cousin uh, much older than her who took her into his own home and and he raised her as his own child. His name was Mordecai. 
And Adassa and Mordecai were both Jews living in the Persian city of Susa. And Mordecai had managed to attain some semi-powerful position in the Persian kingdom under the rule of a king called Xerxes. And in all this, he had kept his faith a secret. He had hidden the fact that he was a Jew. When the story opens, King Xerxes is throwing a party. Now, I love the fact, and you're going to see it through this book, that the Bible is a realistic book. This guy knew how to throw a party. He threw a party that was 180 days long. That's a party. Uh, and this party, he invited his leaders, his princes, and his military commanders to in order to plan an attack on the Greek people to avenge a victory by the Greeks over his grandfather. And so, man, they're, they're planning up this party. If you've ever seen the movie 300, the first battle was that battle at Thermopylae where 300 Greeks held off the entire Persian army. It was during this party that the king made a terrible mistake. He got drunk. He got drunk. Good things don't normally happen when you get drunk. He calls for his wife, a queen named Vashti. And like all kings, he had a beautiful wife. And he called for her to come and dance before everyone gathered at the party. Most theologians will tell you that when he called for her, he asked her to wear nothing but the crown. Well, she refused. And this threw people into a tizzy because she had looked at the king and she had said no. And the king gathers his counselors and he, gather, he gathers people around him to advise him. And they tell him, king, you, you, you can't let this happen. Because if the queen tells her husband no, it's in the Bible. Pretty soon all the women will tell their husbands no. Go read it. It's there. And so he banishes her from his presence. She can't see another man. And he goes off to fight the war in Greece. He's gone for four years. Okay, if you're writing in your Bible, this is at the end of chapter 1. Between chapter 1 and chapter 2, he has gone for four years and he fights this battle. When he returns, the Greeks were way more than he bargained for. And, and man, he comes back a bitter, angry, defeated king. And if there's one thing that's worse than a bitter, angry, defeated king, it's a bitter, angry, defeated king... Without a wife. And so his counselors tell him, hey, listen, we got to take care of this. We got to find you a new woman. So it's decided that all of the most beautiful women in the kingdom will be brought to the king for a contest to see who will be the new queen. It was an interesting process. The women were, would be taken to the palace at Susa, and then each would be put through this elaborate spa process. Six months where they were treated with uh, uh, spices and oil and myrrh, and then six months later with other spices before the king ever saw them. The goal was to make them as beautiful as they could possibly be before the king ever saw them. Well, because Hadassah, had such beauty, she was chosen. She did not choose this. This chose her. Remember that. She was taken to the harem. Because of her beauty, one of the eunuchs there gave her special treatment. Best food, best place. He gave her seven handmaids to take care of her. And it was at that point that her Hebrew name disappears. And her Persian name appears, the name Esther. Each one of the women would get to spend one night with the king. 
If you did not please the king, you would be banished to live in the harem the rest of your life. What does that mean? You'll never see your family. You'll never see another man. And the only time you come out of that harem is when the king calls for you. Every day, Mordecai would show up at the harem and he'd walk back and forth in front of the harem trying to get a glimpse of, of Esther, trying to make sure she was okay. And he got word to her. He said, listen, you go through this process, but in all that you do, never tell anyone you're a Jew. Keep it a secret. Don't let them know. Don't let them find out. Well, finally, Esther's turn came. Her night with the king. And in Esther chapter 2, verse 17, the scripture says this. The king loved Esther more than all the women. And she's found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now I wish I could tell you that this story ends here and everybody lived happily ever after, right? That the little orphan girl who had life so hard, lost both of her parents, grew up to be queen of Persia and lived happily ever after. But here's the truth. Nobody lives happily ever after. Nobody does. And neither would Esther. About this time, two of Xerxes' officials became disgruntled and began to, to plot for his death. Mordecai finds out about this plot, tells Esther, Esther tells the king, and the plot is averted. That's all I need you to remember about that right now. This is going to become very instrumental in the story. Just remember, two guys tried to kill the king, and Mordecai found out about it, told Esther, Esther told the king. So as time passes, and, and, and King Xerxes is filling positions in his kingdom, there's a very important position that needs to be filled, and it's filled by a man named Haman. And Haman loved the limelight. He loved to be honored. He, loved, he was a very prideful man, and he was promoted to the one of the most powerful positions in all the Persian kingdom. And everywhere he went, people would bow to Haman when he walked by. The entire kingdom except one guy who would never bow, and his name was Mordecai. And this one guy, Mordecai, drove Haman crazy because he would never bow. Well, someone brought it to Haman's attention that Mordecai was a Jew. And when they did, Haman puts together a plan. Listen to this. He goes to King Xerxes and says, Listen, there's a group of people here who, because of what they believe, will not honor you. Let me put them all to death. Does this start to sound a little familiar to you? I'll take responsibility for it. I'll kill them all. The king tells him yes. And so an edict is issued that on the, the 13th day of the 12th month, every Jew will be killed. Every Jew in the Persian kingdom. Man, woman, child. And whoever kills them can plunder all that they own. And this threw the city of Susa into confusion, especially the old man Mordecai. When he hears this, he, he tears his garment. He covers himself in sackcloth and ashes. And he goes and he sits outside the palace. And eventually word gets to Queen Esther. Hey, man, you're, you're, Mordecai's acting all crazy. He's sitting outside the, the palace. And she gets some clothes and sends them out to him. And well, what's, what's wrong, Mordecai? He says, you've got to intervene on behalf of your people. And he sends the edict that was released by the king to Esther to read. Well, to request for Esther to go to the king on behalf of the people was a huge request because um, to stand before the king could mean life or death. So this is how this works. 
Xerxes would be on his throne. If you requested an audience with the king and you walk in, if he lifts his golden scepter, you live. If he doesn't, you die. Most people died. The king had not called for Queen Esther in over 30 days. And she's saying to Mordecai, do you understand this means I'll probably die? That if I go in and he hasn't asked for me, I'm probably going to die? I'm not sure I can do this, Mordecai. And that is at that point where Mordecai says to her, could it be that all the unfolding of your life, that the orphan girl who found herself the queen of Persia, found herself there for such a time as this. Well, Esther realizes that Mordecai is right, that she must go to the king, and so she walks in, and the king looks at her, and this is incredible. He says, I'll give you anything you want up to, up to all of my kingdom. She said, well, all I want is for you to come to a party. I'm going to have a big banquet. I want you to come, and I want you to bring Haman with you tomorrow night. But it's all you want. So she throws this party, man, and it is a huge party. And she gets to the end of the party, and the king looks at her and says, I'm going to ask you again, what do you want? She goes, I want you to come to another party tomorrow night. And I want you to bring Haman with you again. king's like, sure enough. Haman goes home that night. And he is he's so excited that he's gotten to go to a party at the king's house. He's being invited back. He's on top of the world. But on his way home, he passes the old Jew, Mordecai. And he doesn't bow. And he goes home. He gets his wife. And he is just so frustrated. I can't believe that old man won't bow. And she goes, what's wrong with you? Look at your position. Build a gallows 50 foot high and hang the old Jew from it. Great idea. So he has his servants start building that gallows. Meanwhile, while Haman is gloating, the king can't sleep. And when you can't sleep, a good thing to do is read history, right? So he calls for the history of the Persian Empire to be brought to him, and he begins reading it. They get to a place where two men plotted his death, and that plot was revealed by a man named Mordecai. So in the middle of the night, when the king should have been sleeping... He sits up in bed and he says, what did I ever do for that man? And they said, nothing. He said, find him for the king will reward him. So in the process of trying to figure out how to reward this guy, Mordecai, he calls Haman and says, Haman, if you really wanted to honor somebody, I mean really honor them, what you, would you do? Haman thinks he's talking about him. He said, well, I'd take the king's finest horse. And I'd take the king's finest robes, and I would dress this guy up, and I'd have the king's servant lead him through the city and say, everyone bow to this man. And he's thinking it's going to be him. King says, that is an excellent idea. I love this story, by the way. This is such a great story. <laughs> he looks at Haman, and he says, go get my horse, and here are the robes, and you go get the man named Mordecai, and you lead him through the city while everyone bows. And don't, don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Right. It's an unreal, unreal story. That evening is the second banquet. At the second banquet, when the king walks in, he says to the queen, what do you want from me? And she said, I want my life and my people's life not to be taken. And the king looks at her and he says, who on this earth would threaten the life of my queen and your people? And she looks at him and she says, the man Haman. And the king becomes 
furious. Haman, meanwhile, has entered and sees this unfolding. The king gets so mad, he goes out into the palace gardens. Haman, realizing he's about to die, goes to the queen who is reclining on a couch, gets on his knees beside the couch, and in his anguish actually reaches out and grabs the queen. So the king walks back into the palace. You've got to see this. He walks in, and what's Haman doing? Well, what it looks like he's doing and what he's really doing are two different things. He is embracing the queen on her couch. And the king says, would you not only take her life, would you also dishonor her? And they took Haman and they hung him on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. Took everything he owned, gave it to Mordecai, and the people of God were not extinguished. In Persia. Now, there are five lessons that are really, really good for us out of this. So, here we go. Number one, life is about being caught up in circumstances that are beyond our control. Uh, as I began to look at the lives of all of the, the women that we're going to look at in this series, I became aware that somehow all of them, and I'm going to use the word victim from an outside perspective, look like they are victims of circumstances that were beyond their control. Things happen to them over which they could do nothing. But if you step back and look at life, that's true of all of our lives. Things happen in our lives and we can't do anything about it. You can't change the family we're born into or the dysfunction of that family. Stuff happens in our life. And much of the stress and the misery of this life comes from trying to control what we cannot control. I mean, think about the anxiety in your life. Of all the stuff you want to control that you just have absolutely no control over, right? Other people, you're not going to control them. Right? The guy driving down the road, you're not going to control him. How about your health? Oh, we spend so much effort and energy really trying to control our health. And yet, how much control do we really have? Money, this is a great one. Man, we're going to save it. We're going to make it. We're going to do so much with it. You know what Psalm 39 says? We struggle to save our money, and we don't know who will spend it. And the truth is, most of us, that's what will happen. You'll save it all up and give it to somebody else who will go and buy them a new car. Right? So we struggle and stress about things that are out of our control. Now, I want you to listen to this. While we are never in control, God is always in control. This is where this gets really interesting. Some stuff you probably don't know about the book of Esther. Number one, God is never mentioned in this book. Neither is the law, neither is faith. No New Testament writer ever quotes the book of Esther. Martin Luther in his writings wrote this, I wish the book of Esther had never been written. You're going to find out why in a moment. So I want you to listen to what I'm going to say about this book. In this book, God is way behind the scenes. Way, way behind the scenes. But he's in control of every scene. He's not in the scene, but he's controlling the scene. And often it's that way in our lives. We wait for the, uh, the miraculous. And more often than not, what God works through is, is, is providence in our lives. So what's the difference between the miraculous and the providence? Here, here's miraculous. Miraculous is where God breaks the laws of nature to accomplish the supernatural. That's a miracle. A miracle is the Red Sea splitting. 
Right? That breaks the laws of nature. A miracle is blind eyes being opened. A miracle is a dead man coming back to life. Where God supersedes the laws of nature in order to accomplish his purposes. Look right here at me. You're probably never going to see a miracle. As I know, that's what we all pray for. But you're probably never going to see a miracle. If you actually count, there's not that many miracles in the Bible. You're going to see providence. You say, well, what, what, is, what is God's providence? Here it is. Listen to this. God's providence is God using the natural events of life to accomplish his purposes. That's God at work in your life behind the scenes to get you where he wants you and do with your life what he wants to do. And here's the thing. While you may never witness a miracle, every one of us are part of God's providence. Every one of us are part of God's providence. Second thing, sometimes as we follow God, we just want to be left alone. There were two times in Esther's life when I believe she just wanted to be left alone. One was when things became so hard that she wanted to be left alone. She was, uh, she'd lost her parents. She moved in with this old guy. And one day, the palace guard shows up at her house and takes her by force. You make, make sure you understand that. This wasn't volunteering to be the king's, in the king's harem. She was taken by force. She had no say in the matter. And bad and hard and hurtful things happened to her. Things that I'm sure she would have never chosen. She was living a life she'd never chosen. And here, this may be you. You may be looking at your life today and you may be going, I, I'm living a life I never would have chosen. I'm in a relationship and I never would have chosen for it to be this way. I'm in the middle of a divorce. I never would have chosen for it to be this way. Man, my kids, the things they're doing, I never would have chosen this. What happened to me when I was a child? I would have never chosen that. Hard things. Hurtful things. And there are times when even as a follower of Jesus that you want to look at God and say, just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. I don't think I can take anymore. Sometimes it's because you, you don't have the energy. Look at me and hear me. Sometimes it's because you don't have the interest anymore. That life has just beat it out of you. But the flip side of that coin, it's where a lot of us live, is that sometimes things are so good you just want to be left alone. So uh, Esther lands up in the palace and few months, maybe a year in, palace life ain't that bad. Somebody's always bringing you food, get a massage every day, right? Servants waiting on you. And she begins to think, this life's pretty good life. And Mordecai shows up, and she would have said something like this. Hey, God, just leave me alone. Right? Things finally got good for me. Can't you just leave me alone and let my life be good? For a while. Most of us, if we're not in the hard, we're in the good. God, don't turn my apple cart over. And here's the truth God loves us too much to leave us alone, whether it's the hard time or the good time. This third one is really interesting. 
the unpredictable, gracious God. Uh, the entire story of Esther poses a lot of problems uh, for most people because we're a box people. We love to have God in a box, right? We want a set of rules that God follows. We call it a box. He always operates this way. And so he becomes very predictable. We say we know what God's going to do, how God's going to respond. Uh, we like a predictable God, so very simply, so we can predict him. Uh, and again, once again, in an effort to ourselves be, be God. But this story, this is why Martin Luther didn't like this. It's an unpredictable God. He's doing some crazy stuff in this. For instance, faith doesn't seem to matter in this. Right? If you've been in the Bible reading plan this week, we've been reading Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Their faith mattered a lot. Everybody bows. They don't bow. Thrown in the fiery furnace. Miraculous things happen. Then you meet Mordecai and you meet Esther and don't tell anybody you're a Jew. Keep your faith a secret. Dietary laws didn't matter, right? Whatever the king puts in front of you, man, really enjoy it. None of that, none of the issues of faith seem to matter at all in this story. Then there's that whole thing about spending the night with the king. Right? Makes us a little uncomfortable. So you get your commentary out and you read, and you read stuff like this in the commentary. Because we will twist theology to keep God in that box. You need to make sure you hear it. And your commentaries say, Esther was such a woman of character. She didn't do anything with the king. Okay, let's back up a second. Do you understand what the Persian king was viewed as? He was a god. Whatever. He, look, do you think if you walked in and he didn't lift that scepter up, you died, that you're going to go in his bedroom and go, no, wait a minute, king. I'm a woman of character. No. She did whatever the king said do. Life was hard. Life was hard. And so this per, per, uh, presents perplexing problems. And there are two truths if this makes you uncomfortable. And I'll just tell you get, you, get used to getting uncomfortable with the Bible. Um, because I think God is very unpredictable. That's why they call him God. He does what he wants. But there are two truths. And the first one is this. God can use you like you are. So I have a question for you. I need you to answer this. Does God use sinful people? Yeah, let, let's, let me ask it one more time. I get a, you know, 20% yes. Does God use sinful people? Yes. Yeah. He don't have any choice. Yeah. Right? That's all there are. So if he's going to do anything, it's got to be sinful people. So watch this. There are sinful people who seek God and sinful people who don't. But there are, there's only sinful people. Are you with me? And so one of those two groups is, is where we fall God does all the time use people that are sinful. He draws straight lines with crooked sticks, as it has often been said. But then God loves you too much to leave you like you are. It's God's desire that we not continue to live the same life of sin we've always lived. Is that we grow and become conformed to the image of Christ. That we are never content to live in the brokenness of our sin. That we don't want it anymore. Now watch Esther. Esther, whose faith had been secret, who, who her walk with God had been hidden, that would never be the same again after this moment. Everyone in the kingdom would know she was a Jew after this. Her faith would be very public. Her life would change forever. She would take a step of discipleship in her walk with God that we call transformation. Becoming more like the God 
we follow. Fourth point. I'm going to be really quick. Uh, prayer is about getting us ready for what God has already planned to do. So Esther says, hey, three days play. When we pray, more often than not, we're trying to tell God what the plan is. Now, I want you to pause for a second and think about how stupid that is. Does God need us helping him make a plan? I don't think there's ever going to be a guy that God looks at and goes, that's a great idea. Right? But that's how we pray. Oh, God, this is what I want to happen. This is what needs to happen. God, this is what we want you to do. God, open this door. God, close that door. Esther didn't pray that. Esther prayed, get me ready for the plan you've already made. I need you to let that sink in. You already know what you're going to do, God. I'm on this end, and it's a little cloudy to me. I don't see how any good thing can come out of this. So, God, here's what I need you to do. I need you to get me ready for what you've already... You ever prayed that prayer for your life? Look at me. That the mess you're in the middle of now, have you ever said to God, instead of change this mess, how about change this messenger? Help me be ready for the plan you're already working. Last point, we're done. You and I were created for such a time as this. God will put us where he needs us long before he needs us there. Um, All of Esther's life appears to be this series of good luck and bad luck happening. It was uh, bad luck that she was an orphan. It was good luck that she became queen. But if you look deeper, uh, you can see spiritual truth. You see something totally different. You see that God was working the events of Esther's life early in her life to get her to a place where he would use her at this point in life. That everything was working together toward this moment. That she could make a difference long before the opportunity to make the difference arrived. And God is doing that in your life. God is putting you in a place to make a difference. Okay, so let's talk about a couple and I'm going to speed it up. You're a mom and you go, I don't know what difference I'm making. Look at me and hear the reality of that. You'll never know the difference you make as a mom. Because the difference you make in the life of your kids, they'll make in the life of your, their kids long after you're gone. You have no earthly idea what difference you're making. That God put you here for such a time as this. You work at Tinker. Can't stand your boss. Can't stand your job. And you're just like, it's just bad luck. I to Stop saying that. It's providence. That God has you there for such a time as this. That there's some eternal purpose unfolding. We don't even have eyes to see. And God is working. His plan. God will probably do some things with your life that you never planned to have done with your life. If you were to, uh, to ask Esther, did you plan to be an orphan? No. Did you plan to be snatched up by the palace guard and given to a king that maybe you couldn't even stand? No, she may look at you and she may have said, I never knew that my life would be this hard. I never planned it that way. You, you may be saying that. But on the other side, Esther, did you ever plan for it to be this good? That your story would be the story that had a tragic beginning and an unbelievable ending? No. 
Did you ever believe you'd be the most powerful woman in the most powerful kingdom in the world during your life? No. See, the reason Esther never planned for those things is it wasn't her plan. The hurt wasn't her plan, nor was the good. It was God's. It was God's plan. And I want to share a story. Go ahead and close your Bibles up, and I'll wrap up with this that I don't think I've ever shared with the church. Um, my wife died in 2005, about 16, 17 months later. Uh, I met the woman I'm married to now, but I got caught between a church's expectations and a family's needs. And what a church wanted from me and, and what my family needed from me. And, uh, it, was a, it was a really, really hard time in my life. Um, and so I ended up going to two counselors. Do I pursue this woman? Uh, or, and Because and I'm, I'm not doing that great a job with three kids as a dad, just to be honest. Uh, or do I do what the church wants and just keep being single and... Um, they, both these counselors, they told me, they said, uh, hey, listen, if you, don't, if you don't take care of your family, you're going to hate your church. Not just your church, every church. And so I, I'm, I, I, I'm struggling with this. I couldn't get off high center. I didn't know what to do. Church, family, church, family, church, family. And, and at that time, I had an executive pastor. His name was Randy Ferguson. And, and one Wednesday night, we're getting ready to start church. And he came in my office. I was sitting in my chair. And he came around my desk. And he got on his knees. And he put his hands on me. And he said, I love you. He said, but how long are you going to keep trying to write your own story? When are you going to stop and let God write it? And live the story he's written for you. And that was it. It's that moment, it was like a moment of freedom for me, is that I didn't plan any of this. This wasn't my choice in life. God wrote this story. Let him finish it. How about you? Are you letting God write your story? You say, Pastor, my story is horribly ugly. Let God finish it. Don't stop now. Let God finish it. Would you bow your heads with me? Could it be that God has put you where you are right now for such a time as this? Could it be that things that have happened in your life that you did not plan, good and wonderful things or hard and painful things, maybe today you would say, Pastor, I just wish God would leave me alone. Could it be that God is waiting for you to live the story he's writing of your life? He's waiting for you to say, you're in control. I surrender. God, take the good and take the ugly, God. It's yours. It's yours. Our ministers are here at the front today. Our prayer is that if God has spoken to you, that you'd respond to him, whatever that looks like for you. Right? You need a Savior. Jesus is waiting. You need a church, man, we'd love to have you here. You need prayer, that's what we're here for. Father, I thank you for our time. I pray you would speak clearly, Father, unmistakably to us in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Hey, thanks for joining us at The Road. If you'd like more information about things going on at Choctaw Road Baptist Church, visit us at theroad.tv or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theroadcrbc. Have a great week.